This episode is supported by my company Amethyx Technologies. When I created Amethyx, I had one objective in mind, which was supporting human decisions in complex data-driven scenarios. And that's exactly what Amethyx is today. It's an independent lab that builds data solutions for your business. I'm very proud of several achievements in uh, domains like healthcare, pharmaceuticals, supply chain, and fintech. So I really invite you to check out amethix.com. That's A-M-E-T-H-I-X.com. Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the regular office of Leuven in Belgium. Today, I'm not alone. In fact, I am with uh, a guest who's not actually a guest because he's been on this show. <laughs> Hi, Adam. How are you doing? <laughs> Hi, Francesco. So Adam Leon Smith is um, an expert in um, uh, data security and the regulations. Adam, do you mind introducing yourself to the uh, followers of Data Science at Home podcast? Sure. So thank you for having me back. I'm CTO of Dragonfly. Uh, consultancy in the, the UK. I'm also very active within the British Computer Society and director of an international uh, not-for-profit called For Humanity, which looks at the practical use of technology in uh, ethical, secure, and private ways. I'm not a lawyer, but I have spent a lot of time uh, discussing the topics that we're going to be discussing with lawyers today, much of which is in the public domain. And maybe you can include some, some links, Francesco, to some of the previous webinars on, on YouTube talking about these topics. Yeah, sure. I mean, we have a lot of material and also a lot, um, uh, a lot to discuss today. Um, the topic of the day is, in fact, a very sensitive one, um, which is regulations and um, confidentiality and privacy of data. And the reason why we decided to speak about this, and of course have you here, Adam, um, is because, well, first of all, you are an expert in the field, but also because there are some regulations behind the corner that uh, are being initiated by the European Union, and these regulations might affect or will affect, as you will explain in the in the course of this show, uh, how data is processed, how data is um, um, uh, stored, transferred, uh, among, uh, for example, uh, European uh, companies or, or data providers and uh, US providers, right? Yes, well, actually, it's not new regulations per se. It is a court decision uh, which happened over the summer, which had immediate effect. So what we're talking about today is already in place. There's no time to adjust and there's no c consultation going on. The decision was made by a court to overturn a particular agreement. Um, and I think to, just to scope it a little bit, we are talking about data processing, but really the core issue is the transfer of data internationally. So right. by transfer, I do not mean copy. When you send data to uh, a system, even if it's temporarily, even if it's for a second, you're transferring that data. If you remotely access data between country A and country B, 
using SSH, RDP, you know, database tool, that data is being transferred between countries. And that's really what this is all about. So this is in fact, you know, this is affecting pretty much everything in our daily life because uh, transferring data the way you just explained is in fact what happens since the very early uh, of our day uh, until until we go back to sleep in fact especially now That's that right. people are working remote more and more often and they basically their digital life is probably more prominent than their their real life <laughs> uh, okay so well it all starts with the eu us privacy shield framework um do you mind giving us some insight and an explanation of what it really is so the Privacy Shield was essentially an agreement between the EU and its various data protection uh, bodies, the US, and also US companies. And it was essentially a framework of agreement that allowed EU and UK companies to transfer data to the US essentially it deemed the united states an adequate country and there's only a, apart from eu countries there's only a small list of countries that are, are deemed adequate for for data transfer now th this whole framework meant that uh, because the us was considered an adequate country various things didn't have to be done when transferring data to the us some of those things are legal and represent you know, paperwork and things like that. And mm -hmm. some of those things are technical. But the Privacy Shield wasn't perfect. It There were three kind of major areas where it wasn't perfect. One related to the deletion of data. Another related to the bulk collection of massive amounts of data. And another one um, related to how it was enforced within the United States. So it was a mechanism by which we could use U.S. companies, um, U.S. systems for personal data relating to European citizens. Hmm. Which brings us to a, a figure who was kind of in charge of all this or, well, starting pointing fingers <laughs> against that privacy shield framework, who um, is, in fact, uh, Mr. Max Schrems, right? Indeed, and he was actually the person who caused the framework to be put in place, essentially, because this all goes wow. back to, um, I think, 2016, when there was uh, a case, Schrems 1, which he initiated against Facebook. And he said, Facebook is storing my data in the United States. This is hmm. not lawful. Now... Right. That went through various courts and the courts overturned safe harbor and safe harbor was the predecessor to the privacy shields kind of a similar thing and i remember at the time as a business owner seeing this being overturned and spending several months doing planning to start to try and move my data away from the, the us but then the eu negotiated uh the safe harbor privacy principles and between the data protection working parties and the data protection supervisor, uh, they, this, this framework allowed us to consider the US an adequate country again. Now, Max Schrems again took this to court. Uh, I think he um, 
He lost in various courts, but appealed to the highest courts in Europe, the European Court of Justice, who earlier this year said that um, the privacy shield, again, like safe harbor before it, is inadequate. So overnight, mm. the US stopped being an adequate country. And it's worth saying the UK is not an adequate country after the 31st of December. Hmm. That I didn't know. And I guess some of our followers didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what was wrong? I mean, what was missing, in fact, in, uh, in, in, in Schrems, let's say, version one, right? Because now there is, I read around, there is this Schrems 2. Um, there might be something that I'm missing from Schrems 1. What is it what is exactly? Well, the, the difference between the two is quite minor in terms of the, the, the points of the, um, the reason things were overruled are because of two pieces of US legislation, the Patriot Act and uh, FISA, the Foreign uh, Intelligence Surveillance Act, I think. Um, and a, and those, those laws mean that the rule of law is considered inadequate in the United States. So a big part of, of GDPR and a big part of our data privacy um, legislation relies on the force of law. So it relies on law being enforceable. Now, because US legislation means that um, different processes apply in order to allow them to collect data about foreign people, that is, it, it is unable, you're unable to apply contracts and things like that to protect data. So if any US company can lawfully be asked to hand over my data to intelligence services, I cannot protect against that by agreeing a contract with a US company, because all contracts include the get out clause of you know lawful requests for data from the authorities. Mm -hmm. And the public authorities in the US aren't party to the contract. And all this, uh, I'll give you an example. In 2017, Donald Trump signed an executive order that said agencies shall, to the extent consistent with applicable law, ensure that their privacy policies exclude persons who are not United States citizens or lawful permanent residents from the protections of the Privacy Act regarding personally identifiable information. Now, that was declared unconstitutional later on, but that's kind of the, the what we're up against here. So, you know, the, the point with both Schrems 1 and Schrems 2 is that US law is considered inadequate in comparison to EU rule of law around data privacy. Okay, so we got that. Now, what happens from a practical perspective? Like, what does the, the Schrems 2 ruling mean in practice? So the data protection regulator in the UK is called the Information Commissioner's Office. And mm -hmm. the regulator of regulators in the EU is the European Data Protection Board. So, so far, the information commissioner in the UK has said, start mapping your data flows, start understanding where your data is flowing to the US. And I'm not surprised they haven't gone further than that, because the applicability of this to the UK is unknown after the end of this year. Now, there was the next thing that happened was there was um, an EU EU sort of guidance issued to all public bodies in the EU to stop using uh, US companies for personal data. That probably wasn't taken very seriously by the UK public authorities, given the Brexit context. 
But last week, the European Data Protection Board really started to issue the detail on this. And they said that you, they said map your data flows, of course, first of all. But then they said what you need to do if you are transferring data to a country that isn't deemed adequate. And the first thing you need to do is establish appropriate contracts. Okay, and the standard clauses for doing that is relatively straightforward. Most companies, US companies, the people like Microsoft and things will offer you these contracts as standard. But next, you need to assess whether the contract is enforceable. And we know from these court rulings, it isn't considered enforceable in the US for the reasons I outlined. There's, there's also no precedent whether UK law will be considered uh, sufficient in this regard. It, the guidance says that you can't consider likelihood in terms of whether the intelligence agencies are actually likely to want to access the data because of the issues around bulk collection of data and mass snooping. So whilst you can go through the process of getting a contract in place and assessing whether the contract is enforceable, it's really hard to see how you could come to a conclusion that the contract would be enforceable. So then you have to take what's called additional supplementary measures. Now, the guidance says that this may not be possible in many cases. Okay. It gives them recommended. By sorry, Adam, sorry to cut you, but by supplementary measures, you mean more uh, technical uh, uh, yes. solutions or or legal technical, more technical legal solutions? Okay, technical because solutions. The, you can't you can't comply just through legal measures. So, right. Yeah, I mean that would that would have been my next question. I mean, I will let you I will let you expand on that. But what's the biggest barrier for a company to adhere to this new regulation? Is more legal or more technical? But it is apparently both. Yes. It's both. Uh, the lawyers can't solve this. Okay. So got it. Yeah. So some scenarios Sorry, that would be considered <laughs> compliance. Okay. So one is end-to-end -end encryption. So data is transferred to the other country in encrypted form and decryption is not possible by the person in the other country. So uh, mm. that's obviously very interesting, given the EU is, is pushing for backdoors into end-to-end -end encryption for other reasons. But let me just tell you what that isn't. That isn't using encrypted disks with a key management service provided by a cloud provider, because they've still got the key. That isn't using HTTPS right. and data encryption at rest. That is end-to-end -end encryption where the key resides in the, the source country, okay? Now, there's no way you can practically yeah. do that if you're doing any kind of processing. Well, okay, that's not true. If you're doing many kinds of processing on encrypted, on, on data in the, in the cloud, right? If for, for storage to be end-to-end -end encrypted, mm -hmm. if my data is stored in the US, I would need to download all that data to my computer every time I wanted to unencrypt it because I'm the only one that can have the key. So end-to-end -end encryption is yeah. one way. Another way is to encode or pseudonymize the data. So it's no longer considered personal data. And there's complexities around how, how you do that, uh, what is enough. What isn't enough is just to make sure the person can't be identified. If it's still personal data, even if the person can't be identified, there is some subtleties around that. Another way it's possible is data only transits the, uh, the third country in an encrypted form. So, for instance, if you were using a queuing infrastructure, right, 
So you could send encrypted messages to a queue. That queue mm -hmm. might be in the, the US and then it pops off the end and then gets decrypted in, in the source country. It also, the guidance also talks about remote access to systems. If, if someone in the US can remotely access your system, then they can transfer the data themselves, right? So what, so one thing sure. that um, it, you know, a lot of people say is, well, the data's stored in the EU, so it's okay, but that's not the case. Okay. Well, uh, I want to I want to add something on this because it really depends on um, uh, what's the purpose of the data transfer. If you are, uh, for example, still giving the capability to the U.S. entity, uh, to the U.S. entity, uh, the capability of computing on data, then you might be uh, probably interested in. Uh, uh, obfuscation techniques as well as um, homomorphic encryption for example that allow you allows you to you know still compute on encrypted data or data in encrypted state versus the you know make the data unreadable uh, for which more an end-to-end -end solution makes sense right uh, what what does the regulation say uh, with respect to this like is the purpose of the data ever mentioned uh, in the in the, the purpose isn't so important it's the mechanism of the, the processing that, that's more important. One of the um, examples that we talked about a lot in one of the webinars I did was email. So use of cloud-based email providers, which is a huge exposure mm -hmm. for most organizations. You have all sorts of personal data floating around in email, right? Yeah. And one of the things we tried to work out is how could a cloud email service be made compliant? And I think you would have to basically move anything that um, move any processing that couldn't be done on encrypted data into the source country. And then only processing on encrypted data, such as, as you mentioned, homomorphic encryption there. So think about email search. When you go into Gmail and you search through your emails, one of the big areas of progress may be if that searching can be conducted upon encrypted data stores then the remote cloud provider could still mm. manage that searching. But if you think about something like um, data loss prevention and compliance scanning of emails, uh, that's going to be much more difficult to do because you're, like, you're running regular expressions and things right. like that. It's going to be much more difficult to do through homomorphic encryption. Well, I know that there are uh, service, you know, email providers. Um, I'm actually one of their clients. <laughs> um, uh, that allow you to search. Uh, I mean, they, they actually provide uh, encrypted email and the secure email services, and they can still provide the search ca feature uh, in encrypted state. Uh, and so I know that's technically viable, that's technically possible. It is happening. I mean, it's happening now since years. Um, now, I wouldn't see, I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't see, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I, I would imagine Google switching to a completely new technology to provide Gmail, for example. Yes, I'm a client of that email provider that you're thinking of as well. <laughs> um, I don't know too much about how it works, but I would assume they're using something like homomorphic yeah, encryption. Yeah, absolutely. Although, or, or they're lying about the end-to-end -end encryption. Which I, yeah, I no, they are using homomorphic <laughs> encryption on the headers, um, and there are some... Um, uh, so you cannot really search the entire... Uh, body of the email so of course it's a bit more limited with respect to the regular search 
but of course, you know, that's the trade-off that you need to, to accept when you want to provide security and flexibility at the same time. Uh, but it's possible. It's, uh, it's perfectly doable. Um, now, I wouldn't see... Although limited, <laughs> as you said, it's limited. It is limited, yeah. I, think... I mean, whenever there is security, it's, uh, it's, uh, we always, we, we've always seen this in engineering. Uh, every time you, you push gas on security, you have to relax on flexibility, and uh, you have to play with that trade-off all the time. Um, now, of course, this is, this is a company that is working, it's a, it's a European company, so I don't think it's under the, would be under the Schrems II regulation, right? right? But uh, I assume that if Gmail wanted Gmail or many other providers out there, you know, uh, across the ocean would like to adhere to the regulation or should adhere to the regulation. Well, the the type of um, uh, uh, technology changes that they have to go through. Indeed, are, and I don't know which way it's massive. going to go because perhaps the big companies can kind of invest in R&D or have already been investing in R&D so they can start to bring homomorphic encryption forward in terms of its capability. Or there's another option here is that they do a reverse TikTok. So if you think about TikTok, where the US was concerned about Chinese data privacy laws, <laughs> right? what they did was they said, same, the law is, enforce is unenforceable, technology measures are incomplete, so you have to sell TikTok to a US company. Uh, so they were splitting up the company. So there is potentially something that could happen around the regional breakup of control of the, of the big tech companies that would be an alternative to um, these kinds of supplementary measures. But that exactly how that works, I don't know, because you know, ultimately, if a company is owned by a company elsewhere, it can still leverage some control, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, indeed. I mean, I, I was thinking exactly the same. Like, what about a, a European google or a european facebook so that you know they we will have to but then even then there will be you know the social network is a global network so at some point you need to exchange and transfer data back and forth from you and us so uh, to be honest with you i don't know but uh, you know if there is a, le a legal solution that can can you know provide or make these these uh, these companies adhere to the regulation, or if they? But I know that for sure the the technological change is massive. It's definitely uh, enormous. Indeed, I think um, I like to call it the data wars of 2021. <laughs> I think we're a bit busy with the virus at the yeah. moment. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think this is going to be massive. It's gonna, it's it's the opposite of globalization. It's the localization of of data. Exactly. And it's a trend that we've seen build and build throughout the year. And it is completely incompatible with the current landscape of technology used by individuals and by companies. Adam, do you want to give us another example if you have or point us towards a, um, you know, some practical use cases that have been presented before probably or uh, feel free to share it with us? Yeah, so I think the um, I think in terms of a reference and I'll, I'll give you the link. The, um, the best reference is the, the guidance that, that's come out from the European Data Protection Board a couple of weeks ago. Um, and that lists all sorts of use cases. But you know, the main ones, as I listed before, it, it are very difficult to achieve. The end-to-end the -end encryption, the, own, the data only transiting the, the third country briefly, um, and pseudonymization. So we talked about um, homomorphic encryption as being one way of, of dealing with this. But pseudonymization is, is another way to do it. If you can essentially make the data less sensitive, 
And this gets really interesting when we start to look at machine learning, right? I know you do some work mm -hmm. in this space. Um, how can you make data um, non-personal by either using synthetic data or some other kind of encoding so that it's still meaningful to a machine learning algorithm and can be trained on that data, but is no longer personal data? Yes, that's that's also possible from a technological perspective. Uh, again, you miss the connection with the, uh, the individual, which means that you might have access to, let's say, population statistics or machine learning models that are trained on uh, population data. Uh, and so, for example, detecting or, or, or predicting trends and these kind of things. But since there is no, no more any connection to the individual, of course, you cannot... Uh, provide a recommendation to that particular person anymore because you don't have that connection. So even there, there is a massive limitation in uh, the way, for example, you might be using synthetic data and you know losing that connection. Uh, obfuscation techniques are very similar to uh, to what I uh, I call I, and I put them under the umbrella of synthetic data as well. Uh, due to the fact that indeed there is a complete disconnection between uh, uh, the individual user and the rest of the data or the records. Well, you can maintain the connection. It just can't leave the source country or the adequate countries. Yes. So potentially you can do something there with maintaining an identifier, just making sure that identifier isn't transferred. Yes, uh, you can. The problem that I see um, is that you might have multiple identifiers when you are mm, trying to aggregate data or integrate data from different sources. And so, for example, uh, this is kind of an example I've been explaining a number of times, even on other episodes, is uh, the bank and the insurance company and the, um, I don't know, the car shop, right? <laughs> uh, the car dealer. Uh, now, these are three entities um, that can have records um, related to the same individual. Now, the problem is that they might be using a unique identifier that identifies that particular individual that can differ. And so this means that we need a, a third party that agrees on the different identifiers uh, from the different sources to belong to the same person. And that's what I find extremely difficult from a technical perspective. Um, there are some some ideas there, of course, but uh, uh, you know you will start using heuristics and you start using machine learning to identify, um, for example, um, uh, the same individual across data sets. But it's something that you know is fuzzy. It's not definite. It's definitely not a, an exact way of uh, of uh, uh, connecting records to people. Um, so this is the major limitation that I see. Uh, when you use, for example, synthetic data or obfuscation techniques or uh, masking is another is another uh, idea, like you uh, associate a particular ID, uh, pretty random number to uh, to the records of the same person. But again, when you try to, uh, you know, you integrate these re those records with um, another data source, you might find different IDs that are that should be uh, indeed the same ID because they're of the same person, right? Yeah, the implementation challenges are, are significant. I guess one other thing is federated learning. If you can um, push your training process to sort of multiple federated locations or, or jurisdictions, and that, that has some downsides in that, you know, things like testing, things like checking for bias are also pushed locally. But that might also provide a useful set of 
um, technology paradigms that, that help to deal with this problem. Yes, uh, you're right. I mean, federated learning is another viable solution when it comes to, again, training machine learning models across data sets. Uh, and that works. Google has shown that it works because they have been, they, they run probably the, the biggest federated learning exercise on, on Android phones for almost a decade now. Um, so we know it works. Uh, we know it's viable. Again, is machine learning the only uh, solution that we want to provide for uh, data across the ocean? Uh, I don't think so. We also need no. to provide indeed uh, the individual records, individual recommendation that are um, individual recommendation are called that way because they refer to the individual. But once that information is stripped away from the, from the records, you can no longer provide that. Uh, so that's the biggest problem that I see. When it comes to machine learning models, we have, I would say that we have way more solutions when it comes to training machine learning models in the wild, uh, rather than, um, uh, you know, indiv preserving individual privacy uh, for individual people. That's right. The biggest problems are in the basics. It's email, it's every SaaS website that yeah. your company uses, you're, you're using you know, systems like HubSpot or things like that, right? There's yeah. Zoom even. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. Well, we'll see what's going to happen. I mean, what do you think is going to happen to the to the GAFAM uh, gang? Uh, for those who are not familiar with acronyms, uh, GAFAM stands for uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple and Microsoft gang, right? <laughs> well, it's a range of things. I think either there will be some kind of corporate restructuring or they will announce new technical protocols or um, I guess they could pull out of Europe. So Facebook's already threatened to pull out of Europe and stop serving European clients over this ruling. Mm. And, you know, they may do that. That might be the easiest option for them. Yeah. Which means that we might be, we as Europeans, of course, we might start building these things ourselves. And probably Indeed. that's the best time for doing so. Okay, Adam, that was great. I mean, it's a, um, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, regulation. Uh, as always, technology, this is one of those cases in which technology is massively affected by decisions taken by definitely non-technical people. I still believe that uh, this is something uh, not only interesting, but extremely useful because it protects and preserves the privacy of people, uh, of individuals, especially now that we have seen a lot of uh, uh, companies and corporations uh, abusing many times. They have been abusing data. They've been abusing individuals in the sense of uh, uh, reusing their data, reselling, transforming their data without their consent. So I think it's a good way and a good time for uh, putting some order and regulations on this matter. I agree. I think uh, this is the biggest change in the interpretation of laws or legislation since GDPR. And its impact does seem incredibly huge. So it'll be really interesting watching how this progresses over the next couple of months. And I guess a key date for the diary is the 31st of December when we find out um, whether the UK is considered an adequate country, which I suspect it won't be given the pace that, uh, that the European yeah. um, Data Protection Board moves at. Which is why we are definitely waiting for you to come back to the show and give us an update. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for having me, Francesco. <laughs> it's a pleasure, Adam. Thank you very much for sharing it with us and uh, have a nice one. Thank you. You too. 
You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com. 